So last week we studied an interaction between Jesus and some scribes and Pharisees that had come from Jerusalem. These guys were looking for a fight. Their ultimate desire was to see Jesus Christ destroyed. And so they came to him believing that he was a blasphemer, believing that they had, he had transgressed the law. And so they asked him, Why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus hadn't broken the law of God. He has not sinned in any way, ever. Not in word, not in thought, not in deed. But he had ignored the traditions of men. He had rejected them completely because for hundreds of years, Jewish people had been just piling rules and laws and regulations and ordinances on top of God's law, just imposing these things on other people, oftentimes treating them with equal or even more authority than God's word itself. Jesus rejected this. This was what the accusation against him was. This is how they accused him of being a sinner. Not that he had broken God's law, but that he had broken the traditions of men. Jesus' response was very straightforward. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You honor God with your mouth, but your heart is far away. The law is of no use to you because you have rejected the commandments of God in exchange for the traditions of men. Dear friends, those words have haunted me all week. I haven't, I haven't been able to shake this, this heavy feeling as I listen to those words because my family and I much like many of you, we've connected our lives to this church in a very meaningful way. For the entirety of our adult life, if the doors to this church were open, we were going to be here doing our best to serve and honor God through this church. And I don't want to get into the semantics of relationship versus religion, but by almost any standard, I would be classified as a religious guy. So when I look at the most religious men in Jesus' day, and I see the way that they're in such conflict with him, and I hear his harsh rebuke to them, I've got to ask myself, how did those guys get there? And more importantly than that, how do I make sure that I don't follow in their footsteps? It's a worthy question. How do we as the people that gather together on a Sunday morning People that show up on a Wednesday night. People that serve on a Sunday evening. How do we avoid becoming the, the Pharisees, the scribes of Jesus' day? The answer isn't to become less religious, at least not in the sense of pulling back from the church or doing less within the church. What then am I supposed to do? How do I guard myself and guard my family and guard this church against falling into this trap? Now, I don't want to go back this morning and re-preach last week's sermon. There's plenty of weeks when I'd like to have a do-over. This isn't, this isn't one of them, but I do believe that it sets the stage for this morning's text. And so it's worth reconsidering. How do we make sure that we don't follow in this path? And in my simple mind, I believe it comes down to this. It comes down to a proper understanding of the nature of God's law and an understanding of the way in which men relate to the things that we create. See, we've talked about this much throughout the last two years, about how God's law came to be and what the purpose was in God's law, how God's law is a revelation of himself and a revelation of his redemptive plan to his creation. God didn't just write some arbitrary rules. 
He isn't some kind of cosmic or spiritual policeman that's just enforcing some laws that sprung up because that's just the way things are. The law is a good and gracious gift from God. The God who is higher and greater and above and outside and completely unknowable unless he chooses to reveal himself. And so it was a good and gracious gift to his chosen people. It wasn't that they were the greatest. It wasn't that they were the most faithful. They were sinners just like all the rest of the humans on all the earth. And yet he chose as an act of sovereignty to give this undeserved gift to an undeserving people. He gave his law as a gift to these people. Now you remember that the law can be categorized into really three sections. First comes the moral law. It informs us as to our duties before God and others. This flows out of God's very nature. God is faithful. Therefore, those created in his image, we must not be adulterous. God is true. Therefore, those created in his image must not lie. God is one. Therefore, those that are created in his image must not worship another. God is revealing to himself who he is in this moral code, in this moral nature. That is written, that is written into the DNA of his creation. This moral law was before Moses. Although it was codified at Sinai with the giving of the Ten Commandments, it was before him. This is why Cain was guilty of murder before God had ever uh, revealed to us the Ten Commandments. This law was before Moses, and this law is after the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It's to guide us and to instruct us. It's a perfect rule of righteousness in this lifetime. It demands absolute and total obedience to the very end. God is revealing himself, and to reject this moral law is to spit in his face and to say, no, I reject you, not just a bunch of rules. So we do well to memorize them, to strive to live by them. Not that we'll ever do it perfectly, and certainly not that we can earn salvation through them, but that we might represent God to his creation, that we might limit evil in this lifetime, and that we may be convicted of our sin. In addition to the moral law, God included a civil and a ceremonial law. The civil law instructed God's people on how they were to deal with judicial matters. What happens if a neighbor steals my donkey? What happens if I accidentally steal my neighbor or, or kill my neighbor's ox? How am I to deal with these things? Now, of course, we know that with the coming of Jesus Christ, the sending of the Holy Spirit, as we entered into this age, that no longer did, uh, did God deal with a national and political people called Israel. He deals with a scattered people among every tribe, every tongue, every nation called the church so that these laws, they have expired. The ceremonial law, it was meant to paint a picture. It meant to paint a picture of God's holiness. It was meant to paint a picture of how God's people were to be holy. It was meant to show how we were to be set apart, how they were to be separate from all the rest of the world. These ordinances and these sacrifices and these washings, they were meant to prefigure Jesus Christ, to point the people forwards towards him so that they would recognize him when he came. So the Westminster Confession, that's what I read from last week, it refers to this law as a gift from God to a church underage. Again, this isn't a way to earn justification. This isn't a way to earn salvation. No one has ever been saved by the keeping of the law. Not Enoch, not Noah, not Abraham, not Moses, not David. No one has ever been saved by keeping the law. Paul wrote this in Galatians 3, 24. He said, the law is our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law is a teacher, a tutor, a schoolmaster, watching over God's people, guiding them and guarding them, carrying them safely to Jesus Christ. And it served its purpose. It was good. Without the law, there would have been no understanding. There would have been no recognition of the gospel. 
So God gave this law as a gift. The problem, though, as best I can understand it, is it because this law revealed God, because this law revealed his redemptive plan, because this law confronted us in our sin, because this law made clear to us our brokenness and our inability to save ourselves, men hate it. Because this law demands submission, men reject it. And instead we build something for ourselves. Much like a Tower of Babel. We build a system of religion in the name of righteousness, this monument to ourselves. We want to build something that's our own. And because we can't see the grace and the love and the mercy and the compassion that God has given us in his law, when we try to mimic what, we, what, it, what he does, we just write a bunch of harsh and overbearing rules. We think we're participating with him. We think we're doing the same thing that he's doing because we see God as harsh. We can't see his law as loving. So when we write our own laws, they're just piles upon piles upon piles till men groan. It's like a little kid. You sat in the back seat and you've watched your daddy drive his truck. Then you jump in the front and you grab the wheel and you do this and you think you're driving. Because from your vantage point, that's all you can see. So we believe that we're joining with God in this by piling these regulations onto people. We believe that we're participating in his work, that we're making ourselves and our community more holy, more like God. And at first, the people, they would have set these laws right alongside the commandments of God. They would have set their traditions right alongside them. But here's the deal. Just as God has revealed himself in his law, man has revealed ourself in the things that we have created. And man is always drawn to his own image. Like a little girl with a mirror. We can't stop looking at ourselves and the things that we've created. So we're drawn away from God and we're drawn to these things that are made in our own image till eventually we've got no use for God's law. We've rejected God's law in exchange for these things that we've created. We've made God's law void in our life. It's of no use. It's of no help. The thing that was meant to lead us towards Christ, instead it just leads us deeper into selfishness and idolatry of self and legalism. We completely disfigured the entire thing. But beloved, the answer again, it is not to become irreligious. It's not to abandon traditions. Anywhere men remain for any period of time, traditions are going to spring up. And traditions can be helpful. Traditions can be quite good. But the answer is to be on constant guard. To make certain that anything we do and anything we have, whether it's our private practices, whether it's the ordinances of the church, whether it's the, the traditions, the corporate and the personal traditions, we've got to make sure that every single one of them is mercilessly tested against the Word of God. That we had never allowed anything to exist. That we never hold on to anything which is in any way at odds with what God has clearly revealed in his word. At the same time, we make sure that God's word has the ultimate authority. We talked about this last week, that we never allow our traditions and our own ways and our own thoughts to encroach upon the authority of God's word. One of the tests in our life is whenever we find ourselves becoming protect protective of or angered by the thought of losing something which we've created. When the thought of losing something that we've created angers us, infuriates us, causes us great anxiety, we're in great danger of saying that we have created an idol, <clears throat> that we have allowed something to do the very thing that we're to, be, we're to be on guard against. So the answer is to hold tightly to God's word and to hold loosely to everything else, even when that everything else, especially when that everything else is done in the name of God, because those are the things that we're most apt to become self-righteous about. 
righteously indignant about the loss of these things because we've done them in the name of holiness, in the name of God. You'll remember that the scribes and the Pharisees, they worshiped the name of the living God. They were praising the right God. They were doing it in the wrong way. We've got to be on great guard about the things that we create in the name of God, in the name of holiness, in the name of righteousness. When we begin to cling to them very tightly and refuse to balance them against the truth of God's word, we're in danger at this point. So now we don't, we don't know the way that the Pharisees responded. We're not given a response from the Pharisees to Jesus' rebuke. We do know that they continue to hate him. We do know they continue to pursue him and would ultimately call for his death. We don't know what they said next, but we are given what Jesus did next. So go ahead and stand to your feet, please, as we jump right back into the seventh chapter of Mark's gospel, beginning in verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not to his heart but into his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you give us hearts to understand this morning? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you help us to trust and obey in your word? It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So it began like this. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. So Jesus was done talking to these Nimrods. He wasn't going to deal with them anymore. They had exposed the hardness of their heart. And, and had made clear where they were and where their stance was with regards to Jesus and to his word. And so he moved on and he calls the people to himself. And he says to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. I want you to see the prophetic nature in what Jesus is doing here. These are not the words of men. This is the word of God. Jesus said, I've come only to speak the words that the Father has given me. It will remind us of the, of the speech, the speaking of the Old Testament prophets. As they would say, thus saith the Lord. You need to be reminded that the very same word which created and sustained everything that is, that that very same word, it demands absolute and complete submission. It carries complete authority in every way. So God the Son is speaking now. He says, hear me, all of you, and understand. Now, who's he speaking to here? It says that he's speaking to the people. The word there is aklan. It's the same word that elsewhere is interpreted as the crowd. These aren't the apostles, bless you. These aren't the apostles. This isn't a broader group of followers called the disciples. This is the crowd. This is the multitude. Many of these people have no desire to trust in Jesus Christ. Most of them have no desire to follow after him as Lord. And yet what he's saying to them here is, hear me, all of you, and understand. Each and every person has a responsibility, has a requirement to rightly hear and understand the word that Jesus, the word that Jesus was about to say to them. Every one of them was going to give an answer. And yet at the same time, we know that no one, no one in the crowd, 
No one amongst the disciples, no one in this room here this morning is going to be able to accomplish, bless you, is going to be able to accomplish that unless they have been given ears to hear. That is spiritual ears of faith. That's ears that are able to hear and believe. Hear, trust, and obey in the word that Jesus was speaking. Only with ears like this is there any benefit to man to the words that Jesus was going to speak. Everyone else, those that haven't been given ears to hear, everyone else, it can be said of them the same thing that the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 4, 2. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Holy Spirit also says in Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Of course, the author of Hebrews, he's talking about the Israelites, those that were led by Moses and then Joshua. They had seen many great works that God had done. He'd redeemed them out of the hand of slavery in Egypt, and yet their hearts were so hardened that they could not trust. They could not obey. They were filled with rebellion and doubt and fear, and they would pay dearly as a result of this. Everyone over the age of 20, they were going to wander around in the, elder, uh, in the wilderness until they were all dead. So we see there in the book of Deuteronomy that Moses is pleading with the people. He's pleading with the second generation, this next generation that has seen what happened to their fathers. And he's pleading with them. And he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And yet at the same time, he knew to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. God was expressing through Moses the same truth that we've continued to run up against all throughout this gospel. That each and every man is going to give an account for the way in which they hear the words of God. Each and every man is going to give an account for the way in which they respond to the words that have been spoken through Christ. But at the same time, without ears to hear, it is simply impossible for you to rightly hear and believe and trust and obey the word that is spoken because we are so hardened in our heart that God's got to do a work a transformative work in man in order for him to rightly understand the word of God. So that as he calls these people to himself and he says this, this word, the only right response to them would have been to cry out and say, Father, I plead with you, give me ears to hear. Think about the humility in this. I have to cry out to the living God and say, there is something so broken within me that unless you change me, I can't receive your words. No wonder there's no room for pride in the kingdom of God. You've got to come to him, saying, God, not only must you speak the word, but you've got to help me hear the word or I can't do it rightly. That's why so many men come to this word and they walk away, completely broken and lost just as they came. The word doesn't penetrate like the rocky soil or the hardened soil, trampled, trampled soil. It's like concrete. It just bounces off their heart. Verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus is clearly referring now to the interaction that he's had with the Pharisees where they accuse his people of eating with defiled hands. Their obvious insinuation is that if you eat with defiled hands, that defiled things go within you and that you yourself become defiled. Again, this wasn't a matter of hygiene. This was a matter of religion. This was a matter of ceremony. To be unclean was to be was to fail to be a holy, was to fail to be set apart. It was to be separated from God and from his people. And again, Jesus had clearly rejected these traditions of men, and so he calls the people over to himself. He calls the crowd over to himself. He says, now I'm going to speak to you, not about the traditions of men, but about the ceremonial law, the dietary law that my father did give you. He's telling the crowd, quit worrying about the external stuff. 
My father's law was never about the externals. It was never about the stuff that you put into your body. There's nothing that you're going to put into your body that's going to change who you are. There's nothing that you're going to put into your body that's going to defile you in this way. There's nothing that you're going to put into your body that's going to make you truly unholy because holiness is about a posture and a position before the living God. It's not about a bunch of stuff that you put into your mouth. Quit worrying about the externals. It's the internals that you need to worry about. And we're going to come back to this at greater length when we move on. Now, some of you, as we were reading along, as, as we were reading through that text, you probably noticed that we read verse 15. If you were paying attention, I hope you were, you'll notice that we read verse 15 and that we immediately jumped to verse 17. You're probably asking, what happened to verse 16? Be honest. Raise your hand if you notice we didn't read verse 16. There you go. I knew some of you did. What happened to verse 16? Did I just skip it? Did Haley forget to put it in the slides? Did I white it out of my Bible? Boy, this is opening a can here. So here's the deal, okay? If you read in the King James Version of the Bible, you have a verse 16. And verse 16 says, if any man has ears to, ear, ears to hear, let him hear. If you read in, say, the New American Standard Bible, you'll find those same words, but they're probably bracketed. And at the bottom, there's a, a word saying, earlier manuscripts do not have this verse. If you read out of the ESV like I do, they don't have the verse. But then at the bottom, there's a note saying, some manuscripts contain verse 16 saying, let he who has ears, let him hear. So look, I, I'm not an expert on the history of Bible manuscripts. I'm not an expert on the translation of Scripture. And, so I, and, and beyond that, you don't care about the nitty-gritty details, but we are going to run into this again. When we get to the end of Mark's Gospel, when we get to the 16th chapter, at verse 9, you're going to see that we run into a, a, into a very similar issue. And so here is, as is, is best I can explain it, okay? None of us, we do not possess the original writings of Scripture. Those are called autographs. We don't have, like, the handwritten original letter from Paul to the church in Rome. We, we don't, you can't go to Israel and find Luke's original writings. Nobody possesses those autographs. What we have are copies. We refer to those as manuscripts. And God, as an act of absolute grace, just an incredible blessing to us, he has preserved for us, he has protected and preserved for us just thousands of these copies, these manuscripts. My last count, there's something just shy of 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and tens of thousands in other languages. God has been so gracious to us and just protecting for us, this massive cache of just, just manuscripts after manuscripts. And what this does for us is it allows the people that translate the Bible, they're able to take these manuscripts and they're able to compare them to other manuscripts. They're able to make sure if there's an error in one, they can surely spot it because there's other manuscripts to compare it to. In addition to that, as they find newer and earlier manuscripts, they can make any adjustments that are needed. So that when the King James Bible was released in 1611, the earliest and best manuscripts they had access to had these words right here in verse 16. But by the time we get to the NASB in 1963, the NIV in 1978, certainly the ESV in 2001, they had found some earlier manuscripts, which they deemed to be every bit as trustworthy, and it didn't have these words. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. Now understand that there's a great number of people that they are King James through and through. To them, it is King James or it is nothing. And this isn't a bad thing. To them, they believe that King James, this isn't an arbitrary thing. They believe that the King James Bible is the most, faith, most faithful and true translation of Scripture. 
In addition to that, there's many people that have memorized Scripture as a kid. They memorized Scripture using this old English style. And why would I go back and have to learn it again in something else? And so they hold fast to this. And to many of them, this is a very, very disturbing thing. This isn't just a, this isn't just a curiosity. I mean, listen, if, if people are taking Scripture out of God's Word, if they're removing verses arbitrarily, that's a serious thing. We need to carry that with the great weight. I can't stand up, up here before you and tell you that you're to pledge your life, that you're to stand firmly on the basis of God's Word, and then to remove the stuff that we don't like. This is a serious and meaningful thing. And again, I'm no expert. I don't want to wade into the waters of this. But here's what I will say. I pray that instead of causing great concern, I pray that you will see how much confidence you should have based on this very issue right here. Firstly, because the people that are doing the translating, the people that are dealing with these manuscripts, they don't hide the fights. They stand transparent. They don't try to sweep it under the rug. Whenever they find a new manuscript that might indicate that a change is necessary, they stand open and transparent and honest before the world. And they say, look, here's a thing, and we think, possibly, that this adjustment is needed. And we're going to make this adjustment. But we're going to include notes to make certain that everybody knows that this was once here. This may, in fact, need to be here, but we're not going to hide it. We're not going to be embarrassed of what may have been mistakes before or what may have been mistakes today. We're going to put this on full display for the rest of the world so that we can praise God. We don't need to be afraid of people that are out there finding new manuscripts. We praise God, knowing that if we find these new manuscripts, we'll stand before the Word and say, world and say, I think we need to make an adjustment here so that we can rejoice when they invent things that are these machines that are able to look into scrolls that are too brittle to unroll. We rejoice that they're able to look inside and see what the words are. Standing firm, knowing that God has preserved His Word. He has faithfully preserved His Word. There's nothing in antiquity that even comes close to the way in which God has preserved his word for us. But secondly, I want you to be blessed by the fact that as you see these verses that are either included or they're excluded, I pray that you will be blessed when you very quickly realize that they play no issue in the primary matters of faith. Not even the secondary or the tertiary matters. Listen, we know that Jesus really did say, let he who has ears hear. He said it in Mark 4.23. Luke records it in his gospel. The Apostle John records Jesus as saying it in the letters to the church in Revelation. Look, we know that Jesus said these words, and we can apply them to our life. In addition to that, their exclusion from this text don't change the meaning of the text. So that we can rejoice when we come to the most hotly debated topics in all of Scripture, and we realize they don't change the gospel at all. They don't change who God is at all. They don't change our responsibilities to Him at all, even when we get to the end of Mark's, uh, Mark's gospel. When we see that there may or may not have been in the earliest manuscripts or in Mark's original writing, there may or may not have been this talk about the appearances of the resurrected Jesus to Mary and to the others, Mary Magdalene and to the others, or the giving of the Great Commission. Guess what? The other gospel writers have recorded it for us. Now, it does matter. God breathed these words. And so we want to be faithful. And I thank God for people that have given their lives to figuring out this stuff. There will continue to be, as men continue to find, and I believe there are still more manuscripts out there to be found, as men continue to find them, we rejoice that they take this thing serious. But ultimately, we stand confident, willing to pledge our life and our eternity on the truth, the validity of God's Word, because He has been so faithful to preserve it. I pray that that encourages you instead of discouraging you. Verse 17, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parables. They still didn't understand. They didn't understand the parables. They didn't understand the feeding of the 5,000. These were the people that were closest to Jesus, and they still didn't understand. So they came to him, and they asked him for help. Well, this is the picture 
It shows us the difference between the heart that perseveres in hardness, the heart that will ultimately be destroyed, the heart that will never come to an understanding of what God has said, and the heart that is transformed. It's that these men knew that they didn't understand. Show me a man that believes he's got God's word figured out, and I'll show you a man that's deceived. If you come to God's word with the humility that is required, you will very quickly understand just how little you know. So these, man come, these men come to Jesus knowing that they were lacking. They didn't just throw up their hands and say, look, this teaching is hard. Who can understand it? No, they came and they said, Jesus, we know that only you have the words of eternal life. We know that you are the Holy One. We know that if we can come to you and rightly understand, we will understand the kingdom of God and we will have a place there. So help us to hear. Help us where we have lack. This is a picture of all, how all of us must come. Understanding how much we lack and asking for more. Trusting that those that come to him in this way, even what they have, more will be added. But to those that refuse, because of their own pride, because they don't want to let other people know how little they know, or maybe because they decide it's just not worth the work, even what they have will be taken away. Jesus made this clear all throughout his, all throughout his teaching in his gospel. So as you get to, if, if you look over into Matthew's parallel account, right about this point, you'll see inserted in there that the disciples, they came running over to Jesus and they told him, the Pharisees are really offended by what you've said. Pharisees are really worked up by what you've said. Look, I, I, don't, I don't dare compare myself with my Lord and Savior. Not in, any, not in any deep way like this. But boy, oh boy, can I relate. People coming over and saying, you want to know how mad those people are over there? Boy, now you've really done it. You got everybody mad. So Jesus' response was, oh no, let me go see if I can smooth this thing over with them. It was not. Jesus says, Matthew 15, 13 through 14, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. He says, don't worry. They are not of us. My Father is going to pull them up. My father is going to root them up. Don't fool with them. They're blind. They're lost. And because of their blindness, I'm a stumbling block to them. I'm a scandal to them. Because of their blindness, I am an offense to them. One of your staff members routinely reminds us that people act like they act because they are where they are spiritually. We should not be, we should not be surprised when people reject the straightforward forward gospel of Jesus Christ because they are blind. And that the people that follow them, they are blind too, and they will ultimately all fall to their destruction. And so my word to you this morning, praying that you have been granted eyes to see, quit following blind guides. They're headed for a pit. If God has granted you eyes to see, use them. Do not follow after blind men. One of the ways you will know they are blind is they reject the straightforward teaching of God's word and elevate the traditions of men in their place. Verse 18, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? This is Jesus talking to his, his disciples. Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them? Since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach and is expelled. 
We should be incredibly thankful that these men didn't understand because if they had understood, they wouldn't have asked Jesus. And if they wouldn't have asked Jesus, Jesus wouldn't have given us this teaching. And his teaching really is transformative. He begins with a very basic and biological explanation. He says, look, the stuff that goes into you, it doesn't go into your heart, it goes into your stomach. The heart, of course, in Scripture refers to not just your emotions, not your physical heart, for one, but not even just, not even just your emotions. This is your sense of reason. This is really the, the, the essence of who a person is, is referred to as their heart. He's saying the things that you eat, the things that you take into you, they don't change your heart. They go into your, they go into your stomach, and it all ends up in the same place. It goes into your stomach, through your digestive tract, and then out the other end. The Greek translation gives us the impression what he's saying is it goes out into the, out into the latrine. Now this, is, this seems crude, perhaps, but it's straightforward. It's the truth. You people are bickering about what you're eating. Whether it's kosher or whether it's not, it all ends up in the same place. It's all going down the sewer. Why are you getting worked up about stuff that's going to get flushed in the end? You need to be worrying about your heart. And the stuff that you take in externally, it can't change your heart. It can't truly defile you. It's not going to change who you are, your sense of reason, your sense of ration, your ability to know God. You're fighting about a bunch of food. Don't you understand that these things were meant to be physical manifestations of a spiritual reality? They were a shadow. And now the substance has come. Cling to the substance. Quit getting wrapped up in the shadows. And so you'll see there in parentheses next, it says, thus he declared all foods clean. Now this is much like, remember there's parenthetical statements in our text from last week where Mark had just added some commentary to make clear for us what it was that Jesus was teaching here. And again, these are the words of God. These are the words of God spoken through Mark. All of it is God's words, even these, even these commentaries that God has spoken through Mark to give to us. And so he's providing for us with the, with the ability to look back. There wasn't a long history between when these things happened and, and when Mark was writing his gospel, but he's able to look back through that brief history and he's able to say, this is what Jesus is doing. He's making all foods clean. No longer are foods to be off limits. Now, of course, this matter with regards to God's people and their understanding, it wasn't settled on this day. You'll remember that Peter, the one that we believe gave Mark much of what he wrote for us, you remember that Peter was the one in Acts 10 that was up on the roof of the house praying, and he got hungry, and he went into a trance, and then a large sheet was lowered down from heaven with all kinds of food, clean and unclean, and he heard a word from heaven that says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter responded like only Peter can respond. Peter said, By no means, Lord. For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I love this. He knows he's talking to the Lord, and he tells him no. There's a number of acceptable answers to the Lord, but no is not one of them. And he tells him no. In the name of ceremony, I reject the word of God. Do you see this? No. I've never eaten anything unclean. And so then the word comes again. What God has made clean, you do not call common. Three times this happened. God had to beat it into his head, his realization. And the church would continue to fight about matters like this. That the, the ceremonial law, these dietary laws, they were being abrogated. They were done. God was making all things clean. That these external, these physical, these outward things, which were meant to show the internal and spiritual separation of God's people from the rest of the world, they were being torn down. That in Christ Jesus, there was no longer Jew nor Greek. There was one people called the church. So we're showing them here that no longer is there clean and unclean. And this is perfect placement, as you'll see when we get to the text next week, as we deal with Jesus coming into contact with a Syrophoenician woman. We'll see that there was no accident that God placed this here within his gospel. Verse 20, 
And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Again, he's drawing attention to what is inside of a man and what comes out of him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. This sounds like Paul more than Jesus, doesn't it? Sounds like the kind of listing of vices, of sins, of evils that you would hear out of the, out of the mouth of Paul, if I wouldn't have told you otherwise. But clearly, these are the words of Jesus. And he lists 12 here. The first six of these are listed in the plural, meaning that you, we can think of them as ongoing evil acts. The second six are listed in the singular, meaning that they are more about attitudes. And so that is in, in the Greek. And so we go through, and first is porneia. So where we get the word pornography from? It can also be translated as sexual immorality or fornication. It is any type of sexual activity between people that are not married. We, we call this fornication. Theft and murder, the second two. Those are obvious. We know what those are. Adultery, it differs from fornication in respect that one of these people is probably married. But it's the same thing. Any kind of sexual activity between people that are not married, fornication or adultery or sexual immorality, covetousness. It's the tenth of the tenth, ten commandments. It's, a, it's an unusually strong desire for something that someone else has. What it reveals about us is a heart of discontentment. Believing that God has not given us what we deserve. It's pride and discontentment coming together. So that we're not happy with the things. We're not satisfied with the things that God has given us. And so we've got to lust after the things that he's given other people. The last one is wickedness. And, and this section is wickedness. And it's a, a general catch-all. Scripture tells us that men are inventors of evil. We're constantly coming up with new ways to dishonor God and mistreat others. This word can also be translated as maliciousness. Men are just wicked. Men are evil. Deceit. It points to somebody that is, that is coming, that is, that is cunning, or that is, that is treacherous. It's willing to, to mislead other people for the sake of self. Sensuality. It's lewdness or debauchery. You notice the root of the word sensuality there is sense. It's a willingness to play to our senses at an unhealthy level. That one's strong. Our senses scream out so loudly for our attention. And we're so tempted to give in to them. I think about even in my own life. I, I can't, I've always got to have something going on playing to my senses. I've always got to have something I'm watching or something I'm listening to or something. i always just playing to our, playing to our senses. Envy. It's like covetousness, it, except in the King James Bible, it uses the, the word uh, or the phrase, an evil eye, I believe. And so this is more than just looking at your neighbor's new truck and wishing that you had a new truck. It's that you resent your neighbor because of what God has given him. Maybe even moving into slander and deceit because you're so resentful of the things that God has given this person. Slander comes from the word blasphemy. Blasphema is the Greek word. It's to speak ill, to speak untruth of somebody else, to tear them down make false statements of them to attack their character. Pride, related to arrogance. It's an inordinate sense of self. Beloved, I would draw your attention to the fact that you never find in Scripture God telling you that you need more self-esteem. Esteem of self is not a thing in the kingdom of God. Pride has no place in the kingdom of God. And then lastly, foolishness. You wouldn't think of that as a is an evil in and of itself, foolishness. And yet, all throughout Scripture, what we see is how foolishness goes hand in hand with being wicked, with all kinds of evil. This isn't a lack of mental capacity. Listen, there's room in the kingdom of God for people with all kind of IQ levels. It's not about that. It's not about how fast your engine runs. 
It's the foolish man that says in his heart, there is no God. It's the foolish man that says in his heart, I will not stand on his word. And so we're to reject all of these. We're to hate all of these. And what he says is, all of these evil things, they come from within. This is groundbreaking, church. For the first century Jew, this is groundbreaking stuff. They believed that the evil was out there. The law was meant to show them how the evil was in here. God had given them this good and gracious law to push them up against the fact that you are evil within. The law was meant to show them how very wretched their heart was, the unclean heart of their state of their heart, and it was meant to drive them to repentance, much like King David as he cried out, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Meant to drive us to that point, but instead, they used it as a shield. You see, they believed that all the wickedness was out there because they were God's chosen people, because they were the people with the law, because they walked in accordance with their own traditions. They believed that they were already pure and righteous and holy. So they just had to make sure that they kept all the evil stuff out there, so they piled on laws, they piled on traditions. They built a fence around God's law, believing that they could keep the evil out of themselves. So what we see with the first century Pharisee is much like what we see with the 21st century psychologist. This belief that all the evil is due to the circumstances, all the evil is due to the environment, all the evil is stuff out there, that at its root, man is mostly good. So that when we act in sinful ways, we're acting outside of our character. We've just got to learn to change our environment. We've just got to learn to change our circumstances. We've just got to get the right job or the right wife or the right church. That the reason we do the things we do and say the things we say is because of what other people have done to us. Because of the crummy hand that we drew in life. And so we're able to feel quite good about ourselves. Because look, we're not the problem. Deep down, we're mostly good. It's all you people that are screwed up. And Jesus is here saying, no. All of this originates within you. The heart is abundantly wicked. My Sunday school class, back in the day, we used to joke pretty often about our desire to buy an island. You can find some islands for pretty cheap, legitimately. You can find some islands for like a few million bucks. And so we, we would joke about how we were going to go buy First Baptist Island and we are just going to pack up our families. Didn't we, Amanda? We talked about that. We are just going to pack up our families and go because this world's going to hell and we need to protect ourselves and our precious, innocent, perfect babies from what's going on in this world. I'm sure many of you feel the same way. You look around at times and you go, man, I just want to pack up and go. If I can just get enough acreage on a big enough hill, I can pull back from the rest of the world, and we're not going to have a problem in the world. Beloved, that's not the truth. Look, certainly your circumstances are going to shape the way in which your sin oozes out. Certainly your life story is going to affect the way in which your sins and your evil heart play out within this world. But if you were to pack up your family and move to a desert island, you would very quickly find out the level of wickedness within your heart. If you were to lock yourself into a padded room, you would wake up the next morning to find yourself trapped in there with the most vile of sinners. It's within you. It's within me. It's within us. And unless God deals with our heart, there's no end to it. There's nothing we can do to prevent it with the externals. That God's got to change our heart. He's got to deal with us no matter what laws we keep. No matter what hoops we jump through. No matter what ceremonies we observe. There's nothing that we can do to change our own hearts. That evil is always going to be there, ready to bubble up. No matter, avoid the right things, or avoid the wrong things, do all the right things. doesn't matter. Without a heart of repentance and faith, it's always going to be sin. 
But we get really good at playing the game, giving the illusion of holiness. Jesus was invited to a dinner party by some Pharisees. And so he shows up. And again, these dudes, they bring up the hand-washing stuff again. And so he tells them, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of your cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make also the inside? Now this is one good way to make certain that you don't get invited back to the next party. Because Jesus then goes on to just destroy the rest of the people too. Like he blasts the Pharisees and he's like, and you're awful too. Just tears them all apart. I'd, I'd invite you to go back and read the last half of Luke chapter 11. It'll bless your heart or scare you to death. But he's saying, look, you people are always worried about the outside. You're always worried about the externals. You never considered your own heart. You never consider the evil that exists within you. You never consider that it's the inside of the cup that's much more filthy than the outside. doesn't matter how clean the outside is. When what's inside is filthy, whatever you put into it, it itself becomes filthy. I've got this cup. I always drink out of this cup on Sunday mornings. And I don't always remember to wash it. And so last Sunday morning, I showed up here, and I get my drink, and I'm ready to pour it in there, and it's bad, like bad, stinky bad. But no matter how fresh my drink was, as soon as it hit that cup, it was going to be defiled and grotesque. doesn't matter how pure the things I produce out here are. doesn't matter how closely I walk the tightrope. When my heart is defiled, everything that comes within me will be defiled. And certainly everything that comes out of me is going to be defiled. The words that I speak, the way that I treat others, even when I'm doing it in the name of righteousness and holiness, it's all going to be tainted by sin, sins of pride, sins of malice, sins of evil and slander and wickedness and covetousness. He's addressing that here, much like the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, listen, murder originates in the heart. Adultery originates in the heart. Theft originates in the heart. While he may have been telling us, you don't need to worry about the civil and the ceremonial laws anymore. He was taking the moral law and he was elevating it. He was showing us it's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It reveals a heart that is broken. It reveals your desperate need for a change. I pray that you see this, church. Because look, I can change my diet. I can change my cleanliness routine. I can put blockers on my internet. I can change my group of friends. I can pack up and go to another church. But Jesus is saying here, forget all that. Come to me with a heart of repentance and faith, and I will grant you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll give you a heart that delights in the law of the Lord. And you watch the goodness that flows out of you. You can't manufacture this. You can't change your own heart. But if you'll come to me in faith, Watch what happens. The things which were once off limits to you will now become on limits. You don't have to work, run, run around all the time worrying about your circumstances, your situation. But you also can't blame them. You don't get to look to God and say, God, I didn't have any choice. Look at these crummy parents I was born to. Look at this sorry husband you've given me. Look at the mess in our church. We have no excuse before the living God. He said, you're evil. In your root, in your, whole, in your very core, in your heart, you're evil. But beloved, I pray that you see the encouragement in this. Because just as you can't blame the evil in your heart on everybody else, nor are you trapped by it. It doesn't matter what family you were born to. 
It doesn't matter what you've experienced in this lifetime. It doesn't matter how crummy the hand you've been dealt is. It doesn't matter what your past looked like. It doesn't matter what job you're stuck in. It doesn't matter what your spouse looks like. It doesn't matter how your kids don't obey. It doesn't matter about any of this. But you can come to live in God and you can trust him with all of it. He's going to make you pure as snow, washed clean in the blood of his son. That's the promise that Jesus Christ is making. Love, I pushed you up against that this morning. I pray that you would be willing to stand exposed before the living God and say that I will not spend one more day trying to earn my own righteousness. I will spend not one more day blaming the evil within me on the world out there. From this point and this point forward, I will stand open and naked and transposed and, and, and transparent and exposed before the living God, and I will allow him to do the work that only he can do. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you, Father, that you not only deliver this word to us and you not only demand that we trust and obey in this word, but that, Father, you give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Father, removing all sense of pride, all sense of self-accomplishment, that you drive us to our knees, knowing that all of this is only accomplished in your gracious work. So, Father, as we take the truth that you have revealed to us, we attempt to, by the power of your Holy Spirit, allow it to be applied to our lives, to affect our worship and our relationships and our thoughts. Father God, I pray that you would just knock us down to our knees, humble us. There are many times, Father, when I confess, and many within this room, I'm sure, would confess that we just needed to be knocked down to size. So, Father, if we need to be humiliated, if we need to be humbled, if we need to be exposed, that we might stand rightly before you, then, Father, we gladly receive that today. But above all, we want you to be glorified. We pray that you use us for your glory now. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.